welcome to Everything End of Life with me, Jason Cottrell, and guests. Now, as the trailer suggested, we're going to be talking about everything to do with death itself. Uh, and that includes everything cultural, social, um, and so forth. And what we ought to kick off with, I think, though, is what that actually looks like for all of us. For those who are not familiar with seeing somebody die, um, let's get straight into that so that we grasp the nettle and we're familiar, we know what we're talking about with end of life and end of life care and all that, that entails. To that end, they say surround yourself with people who are cleverer than you, which is not difficult. And so I've invited uh, my old boss to come and speak to us about end of life care. So today we're talking with uh, Becky Ricks, who's a clinical nurse in palliative care. Um, and my old boss, which is brilliant. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Okay, so just for the sake of the listeners, I wonder if uh, you could tell us a bit about yourself and what you do. So I did my nursing 27, 28 years ago, quite a while ago. You don't look um, that old. And, well, I'm not that old, that's why, Jason. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it was quite early on that I discovered that I had a real passion for dealing with the palliative side of things. So when I did my training, we did obviously various different placements and yeah. we're then sort of towards the end of our training, we could decide, we kind of chose which area we wanted to go and do a longer placement in. Okay. And for me, I knew exactly where I wanted to go. I wanted to go onto one of the oncology wards, one of the cancer wards. Yeah. Um, which was dealing with patients having chemotherapy, um, but also sort of palliative treatment as well and end of life care. So that's where I chose to go for my longer placement. Okay. And it was really sort of quite early on that I discovered that that was, that was gonna be where I wanted to be. That was where my real passion was for. Yeah. So that was where I started my journey with, with nursing. So I was really fortunate that a position came up and at that time, the sister on the ward was quite keen that people. <clears throat> That's okay. Um, people were quite. She was quite keen that people had a bit of experience before yeah. they came straight into working in the ward. However, she realised that I had such a huge passion for it, and that was the only place I really, really wanted to work. Yeah. That she took me on, and I'm really glad she did because really? I stayed there for years and years. <laughs> yeah. um, and it kind of led to other career developments for me. So I went from working on the ward for quite a few years, then I worked in outpatients with the oncology patients, yeah. then I became a research sister doing trials, clinical trials with uh, oncology trials, then I became a, a clinical nurse specialist in breast cancers, then I worked in um, metastatic breast cancers and from there I then went into the palliative. So I've had kind of lots of different ways of seeing the patient journey from yeah. diagnosis right the way up to end of life. Okay, well clearly you've seen quite a lot, so you're probably the most perfect person to talk about what we want to talk about today. And that is, um, it's about the last four weeks of people's lives. Now, uh, people die in all sorts of ways, some kind of okay, some terrible ways. Uh, people get murdered, people get uh, commit suicide. Uh, but generally speaking, we'll have in that last four weeks what I've noticed when I go out to patients in the communities is they all follow a kind of very similar pattern and um, when I go in first of all they're normally uh, relatively awake 
uh, and generally compass mentors. And then that slowly changes. So can you tell us about that kind of last four weeks? I think you're absolutely right. There are different types of death. And I think the first thing to really say is that death is individual to everybody. Yeah. So even though there are certain things that we know do change with people, everybody's death is quite individual to that person. And I think that's really important to say that just because we say there are all these different things doesn't mean to say that every single one of those is going to happen to that person. Um, But obviously there are recurring things like you've quite rightly say that somebody will be more sleepy. um, So actually not really wanting to get up so much, maybe not wanting to eat and drink as much. Um, Energy levels completely sort of dwindle. might find they're not as communicative. Um, Maybe they lose a little bit of interest in things as well, so mood can change. I think it's interesting that what you said about the, they don't want to eat or drink so much, because one of the things I've observed is that makes uh, some relatives feel really guilty that they're not um, being able to, (laughs) where they had for years and years cooked and uh, shared food together, that then they're somehow failing because they're not giving the right nutrition to that person who a week ago would eat roast beef and now will only eat yogurt and and that sort of thing. And I think that is one of the biggest things that people do actually struggle with because at the end of the day we're brought up, we're we're born and you know, and food is fuel and yeah. we have to you know, we have to eat in order to function. And I think when you're clutching at everything for someone that you're that you love, that you're trying to look after you want to do everything for that person. Yeah. So giving them food, giving them drinks is really, is something that people feel that they have to do. Yeah. And I think it's very difficult when we sort of go in and say, well, actually, there's a reason why they don't want to eat and drink as much. You know, they're not using up that energy. They're not burning those calories. They don't want to eat. They don't want to drink. Right. You know, the body's starting to shut down a little bit. It can't process those foods as well. So all of those things, even though it's very difficult for someone to watch their loved one not eating and drinking because that's how they feel it will make them feel a little bit better and a little bit stronger yeah it's about well actually you can do more harm than good you know by giving them drinks if they can't actually swallow them you know the drinks and things choking thing that's a strong possibility yeah i mean that that brings me kind of quite nicely on to the use of the syringe driver and I know some people have kind of commented to me to say, oh, well, I don't want a syringe driver because that marks the end. Mm. Whereas I'm pretty sure that the syringe driver is used in other areas, not just palliative care, is that? It is, that's right. So if somebody is struggling with symptom management, so a lot of chemotherapy patients have a syringe driver in because they've got uncontrolled nausea. Yeah. And if you're feeling really sick, you can't take your pain, you you can't take your medication to help you stop feeling sick. It's ironic, isn't it? So... Having so a lot of chemotherapy patients have a, a syringe driver to help with nausea. Yeah. Um, but there are, you know, there are other areas that we need to give a syringe driver, and not everybody. I think it's important to say not everybody has to have a syringe driver. No. But if somebody is on long-term pain management, but they can't then swallow their pain medication, yeah. it would be barbaric not to give somebody their pain medication in that way. Yeah. Because we need to give it another way, and and one of those routes. So there are a couple of routes. There's pain patches. Yeah. But there's also a syringe driver, which means that it it administers that medication over a twenty four hour period, 
via just a, a little tiny needle that goes under the skin. Um, the and needle stays isn't in there, there, so the needle is removed and it's yeah. just a little tube, and that then sort of administers that medication over a 24-hour period, meaning that the patient is symptom managed. I like that. That's something that's quite important, I think, is that if that over that 24-hour period, because when you take pills, they take a moment or 10 to digest, mm. and therefore you're not getting that immediate relief. So that's about right, as I'm like... Yeah, absolutely. So when you take a medication, it has to got a lot of travelling to do around the systems, <laughs> yeah. and actually then you have to absorb that medication. And some people, when they're towards the end of life, can't absorb medication. Right. So if your body is not functioning correctly then you won't be able to process and to absorb that medication which means it won't work effectively okay so in order to make sure that someone isn't in pain someone isn't agitated someone isn't nauseous we need to make sure we administer that medication some other way so that it's going into their system and it's working effectively and we can we can change around with the doses in there so we can start at a dose and then we can we can increase that if we need to um, it's all a, a very much there isn't a again there isn't a one size fits all it's a case yeah. of we need to look into that medication make sure we give them the right amount to yeah. begin with and then we can increase it accordingly depending on obviously how the patient is themselves okay so going back to that the four weeks uh, one thing I've noticed is that when we go in they've got these amazing things called the profiling bed now back in the day uh, when I trained back in 1980, um, there were no such things as mechanical beds, uh, and I think they're qu- kind of incredible because if you wanted to move somebody up the bed back in 1980, we were told to uh, get them under the armpit, yeah. Australian lift, Australian lift. That's it, yeah, <laughs> and then hoik them up the bed. Funnily enough, uh, when I was taught that, the guy who taught that to me was we had all the students around the bed. And he was uh, quite military, very uh, cut and dry. And he said, come on, Jason, let's do this. And we lifted this poor lady up the bed and he did it so hard, he banged the head on the back of the bed and started bleeding. So uh, you can get a bit carried away if you, with these Australians because, but in, in uh, when I came back into caring, there's these beds. So can you tell us about about these beds and what, what they're about, why they got here? Yeah, so, when, if someone chooses that they want to die within their own home, yeah. we try to get in some equipment in order to make sure that we can make it as, as easy as we can for the patient to maintain a bit of their independence as well. So yeah. by getting in what we call a profiling bed, so that is what you would class as like a hospital bed that you now see in hospital wards. Yeah. It's a mechanical bed, so the patient can control it themselves. So they've got a little handheld gadget that they can they can put the backrest up, which means that they can still sit and watch television if they want to watch television. They can still eat and drink if they want to, so they're not laying down. Yeah. Someone maybe that struggles with their breathing, if they've got a respiratory condition, then they can sit a bit more upright. Rather than having 75 pillows to keep them <laughs> upright, yeah. they can actually put the the backrest up so that they are actually in a more upright position which is easier for them to breathe Um, and also it helps with pressure sores because obviously we don't want people to get pressure sores yeah because it's you we have certain mattresses that we can put so that's the inflatable mattresses has a sort of very unnoticeable ripple effect is that right 
So we have, well, there's two types of mattresses. There's a static mattress, which again is a pressure relieving mattress. Right. But we also have air mattresses for people who we feel probably are likely to break down. So frail people, people that aren't able to move around in the bed so much. Not, we not definitely great skin. Need them. Not great skin, yeah. yeah. So we would need to make sure that we've got them on the appropriate equipment. And that then, how they work is they work on cylinders so that the mattress goes up and down in like a rippling yeah. sort of effect, which means that it, it evens out the pressure on pressure areas so that people don't hopefully break down or the skin doesn't break down. One thing that um, I've noticed that I, I really think is a, a bit of genius is the slide sheet. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a, a polypropylene sheet. Poly, was it polypropylene? Whoever invented that slide sheet was an amazing person. <laughs> That's a genius, yeah. I mean, it's just, so, you know, what we do is we roll somebody to, on one side and then we get all the sheets and everything underneath so we can change the sheet at the same time. If they have a pad because they're needing a bit of leakage going on there, we can change that. And, the, and then the slide sheet, and then we roll everything back the other way and the slide sheet goes underneath and you can then take the old sheet away and and I just think it's an amazing thing isn't it and then you slide them up the bed and it's just like a, a loop so it slides against its own self yeah it's an incredible thing and I think the other thing about the slide sheets are a they mean that you carers don't have to damage people potentially yeah. by hoiking them up the bed like we used to do yeah. years ago it's more comfortable for patients yeah. much more comfortable but also, again, skin friction, you don't get that with a slide sheet, whereas no. if you're hiking somebody up a bed, you've got the oh. friction of the bed and the sheet going up, yeah. causing pressure damage, as opposed to a nice easy glide up the bed, which, you know, and, and they're easy to get out as well, aren't they? You yeah. Know, so oh. you don't leave them in the patient, otherwise the patient would just roll back no. down the bed again. I have seen uh, where somebody's clearly not quite understood how the slide sheet works and put it underneath the the bed sheet itself and it's been sliding Slide people down the bed. with the with the bed sheet as well so that's that was quite uh, illuminating shall we say um, and one of the other things that I see quite a lot is when people's skin as we said before can break down because they're in just in that one position and it's usually heels sacrum and the spine funnily enough and, and ears and ears yeah mm. why ears because usually they're on one side. Oh, they, yeah, most people prefer to, to lay on one particular side. Yeah. So then we find that we get a lot of pressure, sort of damage to ears, to knees as well, yeah. if legs are put are together. Right. Um, so you have to be careful of all bony areas, really heels, anything yeah, like heels. that. So you just have to be very careful and very mindful. And that's one thing that obviously when carers go in, they do have a look at all of the skin and make yeah. sure that you know every and any any changes obviously they would always be highlighted yeah we see that body map that's it's um and for for anybody who has hospice carers come in you're going to find that in the first the first session it's a paperwork uh well it's not a nightmare but it takes about 10 15 minutes just to do the paperwork and that's where we do the mapping out of everything that might be a bit of a problem and I, one guy said to me he said, it's like renting a car, isn't it? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you have to go around and check out where all the bits are that are damaged. So it's not your fault that you've damaged them. Mm. And uh, yeah, so I think that's a, you know, it's a really useful thing to have that sheet that you can see the progression of how something might be breaking down and how to treat that. And, you know, noticing when any changes do happen yeah. and why are those changes happening? Is there anything we can do to help to make someone more comfortable? 
because yeah. obviously if you've got a pressure sore it's going to be uncomfortable yeah. and then the patient's going to be uncomfortable so it's about being really mindful about that because what we don't want is we don't want people being uncomfortable obviously that's not the aim the aim is to make sure that people are as comfortable as they can be i mean certainly we you know we have a handover so we write down in the notes in the patient's house whatever we observe that might be a bit of a problem or an oncoming problem an upcoming problem but also we have a handover between ourselves in at the hospice we type up so that people know what's gonna uh what, what's happened and um, um, if there's anything that needs to be brought in one of the things i noticed uh is you you really notice when people's hands and arms start to swell which is not for everybody i don't think no no but it's something i've seen and it's really useful when you see somebody's you know their, their arms are a little odematous or they're beginning to get fluid in them uh, and when i see that i immediately think armchair pillows so uh putting their arms slightly raised mm -hmm. and that but I, you know, it's something I was quite surprised about how that actually can work quite well. Just raising somebody's arm and all the fluid kind of disappears, not mm -hmm. immediately over, over a few days. Mm. Yeah, because fluid will pull into places that it can't flow because your flow of your fluid in your body isn't actually hasn't got the the oomph to kind of push backwards and forwards yeah. like ours does. If you're moving around, then obviously you move it around. But if you're static, yeah then it will just pull and it will just sit. So if you can raise it, it means it will flow back. So is that is... largely to do with heart disease or? Not necessarily. Um... It can be anybody that's not moving. Right, um, okay. so that's inertia. It, it's just, it's to do with your lymphatic fluid and everything, you know, all the fluids in your body that will just sit if you don't actually, I mean, if you go on a very, very long walk and yeah. you've got your hands by your side, yeah. If you look at your, and you're not actually scrunching your fingers up, if you look at your hands after a little while, you'll probably find they feel very stiff. Yeah. And it's because you've got them down yeah. and you're not actually moving them. So they, you, you sometimes get what I always say is you get fat fingers, you know, when <laughs> your fingers look like sausages on the end of your fingers. Yeah. Um, and they get uncomfortable. And if you yeah. then move them, you think, oh, ow, ow, that it, feels really uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's the same sort of thing. If someone's static in the same position, then you know that fluid will just sit there right. but if by a gentle movement it will mean that it does then and if it's raised up it means it will then flow back okay so just kind of recapping on that so when somebody's coming into that stage of life um and, it, and it, it's not necessarily four weeks it can happen over a week it can happen over six eight weeks uh from what we've seen and be, um so they start to slow down eating and drinking starts to uh become less and they sleep more mm -hmm. often um and there is another thing that happens with some people it happened with my sister it happened with uh somebody else's father-in-law whose name escapes me at the moment but um and that is that they get a thing called morbid agitation where they can their personality can change just slightly for no particular reason they can become either angry or waving their arms around quite a lot so and that's that morbid agitation so what is that what's happening there so I think the first thing to say is it's really important to look holistically at the whole patient yeah so I think what we don't want to do is go rushing in with medication to give them something so it's about looking at the environment as well is there a reason why they're agitated yeah is it because they've got unfinished business maybe is it because they need to go to the toilet yeah. Is it because they're too hot? Is it because they're too cold? Is it because it's too noisy? 
Because they're know. not able to communicate. This. Yeah, so if they can't tell you what's the matter, it may well be it's something about the environment. So it might be that it's nothing to do with anything sort of with the body itself. Yeah. It's to do with the fact that it's something there's like, something yeah. that they can't tell us what it is. Um, I think, you know, and I, I think sort of when I think about a patient who I can remember from some time ago now, who had motor neurons disease, unable to speak, but the family knew what that patient wanted, right? Because they got to know exactly what what yeah. were the preferences, what the signals were, and actually, they were really quite distressed one day, and it took a while to work out what the problem was, and the actual problem was they had a scratch on the end of the nose, right? An itch, sorry, an itch. not a scratch, had yeah. an itch on the end of the nose. <laughs> Couldn't. But none of us could work out what that was. Okay. And once we'd got to that point, it was absolutely fine. How did you get to that point? Well, it took a long time. It was <laughs> lots of head, shoulders, knees, toes, yeah. anywhere, like body parts, trying okay. to work out where it was that it was annoying. Uh, and we got to nose, and it was because they just had an itch on the end of the nose. That's just something so small. It's <laughs> so, really irritating. Yeah, and it probably was very, very irritating. Yeah. But... Um, I think, you know, I mean, that's that's kind of like just one sort of example. But I think it is important that we look at the whole environment first and right. work out, is this like, has that person not been for a, a wee for a long time? Yeah. And it may well be they're in retention and they yeah. need to have maybe a catheter put in or something. Right. Um, have they not had their bowels open or have they had their bowels open and actually they're, they're soiled, yeah. you know, they're dirty. And who wants to be laying in a dirty bed well, you know? yeah. so all of those sorts of things you know are they too hot are they too cold yeah. is it i mean we've all been around people's houses that are very noisy because if you're at home you've still got grandchildren children yeah. animals all of those sorts of things you know is it because it's too noisy and actually they just want a bit of peace yeah, yeah you know yeah. i think there's all those sorts of things rather than rushing in with, with, yeah. with medication yeah. we do need to look at the environment and once we've ruled all of that out it may well be the person's still a bit agitated. And is it because they're frightened? Is it yeah. because they don't know that anybody's around them? You know, if yeah. they may be very sleepy, maybe just a gentle touch of a hand will let yeah. them know someone's around me. And we, that might be enough to calm them, you know. Certainly, we, that was definitely the case with my father-in-law. He, uh, when he went, he was doing the waving the arms thing. and We, we couldn't figure out what it was that he wanted. Uh, um, but just um, saying, actually... <laughs> Telling them, I have shaved you. You've had a shave. Mm. Are you okay? And he just settled quite because he was a very fastidious guy, mm. you know. And he he was putting his hands up to his face and then out into the air, and he wasn't really conscious. He didn't seem to be conscious. Um, but just saying that, and he just he visibly he's kind of just relaxed, which mm. was quite weird. I didn't think that would be what it was going to be. Yeah, and you know. and like you say, I I remember from a family member years ago had always quite categorically said, make sure I've got my false teeth in. Yeah. You know, because that's really important to me, make sure I've got my false teeth in. Yeah. And actually, little things like that, well, might seem little to us, but actually aren't little no, to, to all, people. Yeah. You, yeah. Know? If you, you, you know, if you're a lady, for example, that likes to have their hair done a certain way, yeah. or like to make sure, you know, a lady that's always had a lippy on, well, you know, yeah. they're, they're things that might seem small, but actually they're probably quite big. I mean, I, I love that because when... When we go in first to patients, what I tend to say to the relatives is that we're trying to keep, or our aim is to keep people agitation-free, anxiety-free, 
pain-free and emotionally well supported. So it's not like hospital care, it's much more um, person-centred. So rather than trying to solve problems, treat problems, get somebody better, we're there, I think, to care for them. And when you can relax and you haven't got to run around getting something done, it's much easier to, or much easier to take the time to observe what's going on with the family, I think, and what's going on with the patient, and then give them much more appropriate care. And I think that's why maybe some people want to die at home, because they feel safer there, whereas in a hospital it's really busy, you know, mm. it's really noisy. I will just say that obviously, because at the moment I'm working at the hospital, and right. I have to say that sometimes it is right to, you know, to die in hospital. Yeah, yeah. Um, because of sometimes people panic a little bit, you know, about if we're if we're at home, are we going to be able to cope with that? Yeah. You know, and I think that if you're going to cope, because I think the one thing to remember is that if one of your loved ones wants to die at home, if that's their choice. Yeah. It's about the changes that have to happen in your home in order to make that happen. And I think sometimes that's quite frightening for people. Yeah. Um, and the change, all of a sudden your house does to a certain degree become quite different, you know. So you're going to have maybe carers coming in. You're going to maybe have district nurses coming in. Yeah. Nurses coming in from all different walks of life. Definitely, um, it's really equipment, yeah. All of those sorts of things. So your house suddenly becomes... A bit of an open area to quite a lot of different people yeah. and I think that sometimes people just can't take the thought of that happening or they can't bear the thought of their loved one dying in the house where they've yeah. then got to live yeah. and I think sometimes that's not always but sometimes we find that younger people who have got young children they will then think I don't want my children to come see into the me. front room and see that that's yeah. where mummy died or daddy died or yeah. whatever so I think sometimes that's not the right environment for people and maybe they think either hospice or they think hospital or wherever because the other thing is as well is that when you're in an environment like a hospice or a hospital you have got people there that if you need them you yeah. know they're there straight away well that was definitely the case for my sister I mean she was <coughs> she did want to go home but there was a couple of things that was stopping her. She was in hospital. She was on uh, she was on 15 litres of oxygen, 5 litres of nebulizer, And it wasn't really feasible. I don't think an ambulance can carry that amount of oxygen. So actually physically transporting her home was going to be a real big challenge. And she was pretty much end of life um, the last two or three days. And hospital was the best place for her to be because there were people immediately able to react to her pain levels and but if she would have been at home when she got morbid agitation she pulled out some lines so she wasn't getting the medication in hospital they could see that but at home there would have been gaps in her care uh, and times when if she'd have pulled up her mask there wouldn't have been someone there uh, to put that back on and make sure her all her her oxygen was going in so and um, yeah, so her being in hospital was probably the best mm. place for her. The other problem, of course, is her house was really tiny. It was like a, a one bedroom house. And to get a profiling bed in that was pretty much not feasible. You know, but it would have had to taken all of her artwork out. And she was an artist. And to um, taken all of that out 
wouldn't have been the place that she recognised as home anymore. However, if she'd have wanted that, I dare say you would have done everything. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Sure. And I think that's that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. That as a loved one watching your family member go through that, you will do whatever yeah. they want. Yeah, and it do. is about what they want. And it, and you know, we'd have, we wanted her to go home, but it just really wasn't practical, mm. you know, for her. And in the end, I think she kind of got that as well. So she started wanting to go home because she was being told at the time that that was the aim was to get her home and you know and it is for all basically if they want to go home you want to try and get them yeah. to that so so that was quite you know for me that was quite an interesting dilemma because it, it shows that not everything's black and white when somebody says I want to go home they can't always it's not always possible no. it might too be too ill to actually get there but I think we very often try to do as much as we oh, can yeah. to do whatever people's preferences are. Yeah. And, you know, if someone wants to go home, then, as you know, we've got yeah. beds into the most tiniest of places before. <laughs> yeah. um, caravans, all sorts of things. Yeah. You know, we will do it if that's what someone wants. If that's wants. what they want, yeah. Um, and I think, again, about having those conversations quite early on, if you can, yeah. is really good because then you know exactly what... I think that's, that's, you, you know, that's the nail on the head for me, is the early on conversation. Mm. And this is something that hasn't been probably around uh, 20, 30 years ago. No. The idea of saying to somebody, how would you, you know, what, what are your care choices? I mean, I've talked with uh, Dr. Karen Chumley about my care choices, mm. but uh, how talking about people find it very difficult to talk about how they want to die how they want that to look mm. and it, you know and I, I i can understand that can be such a really tricky conversation but having it two or three years before you know the likely event i think is a much better idea than two or three weeks before the likely mm. event so and i think again obviously i won't go into detail because i know you've already covered that but i think you have to work very much with the person as well because sometimes people aren't ready to talk about that. Yeah. It's ideal when some people will, the minute you walk in the door, they'll want to know everything and tell you everything. Yeah. But I think there are some people that that's a very difficult conversation because for all manner of different reasons, they're not ready to go there. And it very much has to be on their terms because sometimes it's very difficult if you to make the right choices if you're not yeah. ready for that you won't make the right choices um and you know i have seen people who i've worked with for a long time who you know as a patient and nurse relationship and they haven't been ready to talk about that yeah. but okay. then all of a sudden completely out of the blue when you're talking about something completely different they'll slip it into a conversation and you have to almost kind of, whoa, whoa, hang on, let's go back a little bit and just Can go you, back to what you said. Have you got an example of that? Yeah, so I, I did have somebody m many years ago now who was relatively young and just didn't want to go there. Didn't matter what we did or however many times we mentioned it, we just didn't want to go there yeah. with that conversation. And I think... And I kind of got that, and because I'd worked with that patient for quite a long time, I knew that that really wasn't going to happen until that person was ready. So very much, I just played it that you know one day hopefully we'll get to that point. Yeah. And then one particular day we did get to that point, and I wasn't expecting it. It was completely 
sort of very random. Um, we were just having a conversation about shopping and, you know, they'd been out and they'd got this and they'd got that. And then all of a sudden in the conversation, I don't want to be resuscitated. And I thought, oh, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. We were talking about shoes one minute <laughs> yeah. and the next minute we're talking about that. And so that was important that I rewound that conversation yeah. and we then went there and, and the patient was happy to go there with that. So we, we it went in dribs and drabs. So yeah. we started with that and then, you know, sort of we went on to, okay, and what would you want when it comes to, you know, your end of life? Where would you want to be? And all of yeah. those sorts of things. So I think very much it's about gaining trust. So sometimes yeah. you can't do that in a first instance, you know, when you first go to meet someone, hello, and do you want to be resuscitated and where do you want to be? <laughs> it's not the best way of going about yeah. it. It's not great bedside so manner, is it? It's not. So sometimes you really have to work with people yeah. and gain that trust. And I don't know that maybe the patient that I've just spoken about would have been happy to have done that with just anybody. Yeah. But I think because we'd gained trust yeah. and we were not even concentrating on that conversation because we weren't, we were talking no. about shoes and it just slipped in because that was when that person was comfortable talking yeah. about that. I think that's, you know, it's, it's amazing that it can come out like that and somebody's obviously got two trains of thought going on there and one's bubbling underneath the surface. Mm. And I think I love the fact that what you said about you have to gain trust. That's For me, that's really important. That's why I love working in the community for the hospices because we're such a small team. The person who is, or and the relatives that we visit, they see us over and over again over mm. a period of that, that time, that four weeks. And it's very much about going, gaining trust. And one of the most wonderful things, I think, is when you go in for the first visit and it the relatives can be really confused about what's going on. They don't know, they don't understand what the service is about. They're really worried about how they're going to look after their relative or the relatives, you know, worried about how the patient is going to die and what that's going to look like. And when after the second visit in the evening when they know we're coming back you can see their shoulders sink and they're feeling a bit more relaxed and then over the coming days you know there's um there's a trust that really gets built up and they look forward to the visit which mm. is the strangest thing um but if you can make them laugh as well you know that's a great trust builder i think you know because you're facing they're facing a really really difficult time mm. Mm. and and i think you know the relatives and the patients I think as well that's important because we look at the whole don't we so we yeah. don't look just at the patient we look at no. the relatives too because they're just as important well that's the emotionally well supported bit yeah. it's for everybody yeah. going mm. through that and actually like you've just said if you gain that sort of familiarity with a patient with the relatives yeah then why can't we be jolly I think there's a bit of a misconception that you yeah. just go in and you're just you can't smile you can't laugh you can't you can't do any of that um when actually we're being normal yeah and actually when you're in a situation where your loved one or you are you know facing this awful time yeah then actually someone coming in and being normal yeah. is actually quite nice and quite reassuring yeah i remember one particular patient um and the house was quite somber and it was a lady who was uh she was feeling a little bit tense, shall we say. And she would, they were all sat in the lounge and we'd just kind of finished care with her. And she said, do you know what? I, I, I think I know exactly what I need. And I, I just looked at her and looked at the relatives and I looked back at her and I said, 
Will it be a pint of Guinness? And she's just nothing for a minute. And then a big grin came across her face and she said, oh God, yes, if only I could. <laughs> and the whole room just, you know, relaxed. Mm. And just one little silly comment, you know, and that was really lovely. But and then, like I say, you know, when, the moment, when everything is quite awful, really, let's face it, yeah. it is one of the worst times of your life, isn't it, when you're going yeah. through something like that? And we all know from personal experience and from doing it for the years that we've done it for, yeah. that it's not a great time. So actually, if we can be as normal as we can, as well as being professional, obviously, but yeah. if we can be as normal as we can, yeah. then I think that they get some comfort with that as well. And that's, the, that's I think, the beauty of what St Helena does out in the community is is you're there um, to, to take your time with them, you know, not just to get them washed, clean, medicated and, you know, and then rush off to the next patient, but to spend time with them being reassuring. And, and I think not all hospices are the same, not all hospices, I mean, I get this now, uh, not all hospices offer the same services, and it's a big, sharp learning curve for all hospices. But uh, it's great to be able to work for the one that I do work, because I just love the work. It's, it, it's, I think it was voted the second best hospice, or parts of it was the second best in the country. Who knew there was a competition for hospices? You know, that was a very strange thing. Um, okay, well, listen, thank you very much for your time. Uh, and um, I know you're busy, probably not so much today, as it's annual leave. So thank you very much for coming in on your, giving us uh, some of your time. Um, it's been a real pleasure. And, uh, yeah, let's um, have you back sometime to talk about some other aspects, if that's okay. Would Absolutely, that be that? Yeah. yeah. No, thank you very much. Oh, no, my absolute pleasure. They say that to be successful, it is wise to surround yourself with people cleverer than you. So a big thank you to Becky for that very enlightening interview. I hope to have her back over the year to talk about a variety of subjects to do with end-of-life care because, as you can tell, she really knows her field well. Next week, I shall be inviting Lee Joshek from Freedom Funerals to give us the heads up on alternatives to traditional funerals here in Britain, possibly in other places in the world as well. In later interviews, I want to explore the rite of passage from many other cultures and countries, but right now, we'll start with Lee. To get an idea of what Lee is like, I have to tell you a tiny short story. Today, I was doing my other job of supplying cooking oil to pubs and restaurants across Essex and Suffolk. So if you're looking for a pub, if you're a pub that's looking for an oil man, just PM me from my Facebook page, Everything End of Life, Bespoke Service, just got to get that in there. But I met a chef called Liam at the Lay of Fox. He does awesome food. He told me that he knew that Lee had found a child, found out that a child's hamster had died and the child was very upset. So Lee had a small coffin made and had done the whole funeral thing with the car and everything. <laughs> I'm not sure how true that is, but it's very Lee. Uh, and Lee is very clearly well respected as a funeral director here in Colchester, England.
And they say that to be successful, stop. What an amazing lady. She's just uh, so knowledgeable. My friend Becky Ricks, fantastic. So uh, next week we're going to be looking at funerals and um, all that, that entails with uh, Lee Joshak from Freedom Funerals. Now obviously, British white perspective, um, but it's the same in many parts of the world and we will be looking at other ways that people, other cultures, and how they deal with uh, after the end of life and, and how they celebrate that. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the uh, podcast and if, if you have, do like it, share it, you know, all the usual things and we'll see you next week. Thanks very much for listening.